Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and along with me today is Dr. Mike Lycona. Mike, I'm so excited that finally my friend Mike Lycona, one of the top three resurrection scholars on the planet, is here with me. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me on, Braxton. Great to be with you, friend. Yeah, and uh, we won't spend too much time on personal stuff, but I do want to say that there is more to Mike Lycona than just his incredible work on the resurrection and things like that. He has um, been a friend of mine for uh, quite a while. In fact, back in, I think maybe 2009-ish, I was the recording secretary for an organization that is a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And um, uh, we, I was at a conference where Mike was, didn't know he was gonna be there, and went up to him like a fangirl. You're Mike Lycona. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And uh, and so Mike was nice enough to spend three hours chatting with me, somebody who could advance his career none, someone who was of no use to him in terms of the material things of the world. And yet, um, he you know he, he befriended me and we became friends and and since then we've we've spoken at conferences together but i've been to mike's house and we've uh done other things outside of uh you know career related stuff ministry related stuff so um so it, it's really cool and so i'm just really excited to have you here mike and this is a great um opportunity i think for us because what we're able to do here today is to respond to someone who we have both uh debated now i see people in the in the chat telling me that i need to turn up my audio and i'm not exactly sure exactly how i can do that um but uh we'll just have to deal with it i think 
I don't really know what to do about that. But um, anyway, uh, maybe maybe Cameron, if he's in the chat, can send me something. But listen, yeah, I was I was uh, a fangirl and then a friend. And so I, I love Mike. Mike is one of my heroes and has taught me a lot. But we've both debated Matt Dillahunty on similar topics. Mike debated Matt on the resurrection. I guess it was on the resurrection of Jesus. And I debated Matt on the... Um, uh, it's loud enough, they say. Okay, good. Uh, I debated Matt on does the Christian God exist? And so those are somewhat overlapping topics. And so... We thought this would make, I thought this would make for a good thing for us to discuss together. I know that Mike has a YouTube channel. And by the way, if you're not already subscribed to Mike's YouTube channel, you need to be. And if you're at a desktop, you can just open another tab without even moving away from this show and go subscribe right now to what he's doing over there. But, um, you know, we having debated this this guy, both of us, Matt, I thought, let's let's talk about this together. Mike's not necessarily watching what all the atheist YouTubers are doing, but I am. And so I thought, hey, Mike, uh, let's do something that maybe you wouldn't normally do. Let's let's respond to what Matt has to say, because Matt is incredibly influential in um, the YouTube community and as such has a big reach. In fact, Matt's reach is much wider and further than what you would get with some atheist PhD professor somewhere. Mike can make or Matt can make a video uh, where he's just talking about a video game and have more views than some of those atheist PhD professors will have book sales in their whole lives. And so uh, it, it's, it's relevant for us to respond to him. And in, in setting this up, and then I, I, want, I want you to tell me why you agree to do this, Mike, but in setting this up, um, I think that Matt is has a lot of similarities with Christopher Hitchens, but I think I would go so far as to say that I think that Matt is more effective than Christopher Hitchens was. And I think that's saying a lot because while I don't necessarily think that Christopher Hitchens was as grounded in all of the philosophical concepts and things he was discussing, I think Matt is more than uh, than uh, he was. Christopher Hitchens was, and I, and I think Christopher Hitchens had an incredible rhetorical ability, and I think Matt has an incredible rhetorical ability. So I think this is someone who's relevant. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I, I agree with you uh, entirely, Bryson. I, you know, when I was first asked uh, to debate him, I had never heard of him, um, and it's because I, I don't follow the world of atheists online. Um, you know, it's just a different world in which I live. Um, so typically I, I don't debate someone, um, you know, unless they're a scholar because I, I'm not trying to be elitist or anything here. It's just, you know, I, I like, you know, I can grow through my preparation if I'm preparing for a scholar because they, you know, they're well-researched in these things. And look, Matt is, is, is very intelligent. So I am not in the least trying to, to put him down. He can articulate his arguments better than most atheist scholars can, but just I, I did I had never heard of him at the time. But I do think he is a, a powerful force for atheism. And in fact, um, uh, the video of my debate with Matt on my YouTube channel—I don't know what it is now. I know it's well over four hundred thousand views, it's more than my debates with Bart Ehrman. You know, yeah. so and. Ehrman's probably, he's getting a lot of his information from Bart Ehrman. So he, uh, you know, he has just a tremendous following and you, you have to admire him for that. 
applaud him for that. Yeah, the unapologetic apologist, which is a younger uh, apologi- apologist YouTuber, has has given us a super chat and says, "Matt destroyed Braxton. Mike did great, though." So I thought we'd we'd go ahead and share that right from the top, well, for the sake I, of humility. Actually, Braxton, I thought you did better in your debate with him than I did. Well, uh, I appreciate. I thought that you point. just did a tremendous job in your debate with him. So, um, so I appreciate the compliment from that guy, but. Uh, but I, I thought you did a fantastic job. Well, I appreciate that. He's known for putting snarky comments that he suspects atheists will soon make uh, ahead of them. Also, as we're just getting started here, Mike, I should say that Jim Amberg says, who is the next fly on the wall talk with? <laughs> hey, well, that's cool. I'm glad he's following. Um, this, this is a fun series that I'm just really interested in, in doing, you know, where, uh, it, it's taken a uh, pattern um, after Jerry Seinfeld's series. I think it was called Comedians in Cards Getting Coffee. And I figured this would be really just cool to be able to sit with some really cool people and, and just chat with them, you know, because I've had so many people say to me, boy, I wish I could just be a fly on the wall when you're, you know, just relaxing and talking with Gary Habermas or Bill Craig or one of these. Well, now they get to. So we had four episodes with Craig Keener. I've got several more in the pipe. And I don't know who the next one's going to be. Um, in fact, I'm faced with the decision right now whether um, I'll probably do at least one more uh, series. But then I might just, we just started a Patreon channel uh, page, and I might just do it for patrons uh, on there. I don't know. It's something I'm considering. So, um, but yeah, it's just a fun. So. Uh, I can't tell you who the next one is because I haven't decided yet. I'm thinking perhaps Chad Williams, who's a former Navy SEAL, um, and we've become friends over the years. Um, He's just an amazing guy, and he talks about his time with the SEALs. And we did this uh, walking along this boardwalk in in, um, Tel Aviv on the Mediterranean Sea last October. So uh, it was pretty neat. Really cool. So last thing, we need to get to it um, because I don't want to take up too much of Mike's time. But uh, I do feel like I need to throw this up. Um, This was thanks for the super chats, everyone. This is from Anthony Roden. And just to make you feel welcome, Mike, he says, Dr. Lycona, thanks for your work. Some friends and I are reading through your 700 page work on the resurrection. Are there any tips you'd give us to split it up so we can read through it? Thanks. Yeah, that's a tough one, isn't it? Because there's only five chapters. <laughs> so I would guess you just go by section. You know, you choose a number of sections that you're going to read through um, at that point. Some of the sections are shorter than others. But, yeah, you probably don't want to do one chapter at a time. All right. So we'll get to it now. Um, I do want to say thank you. There are other people giving super chats, and that means a lot. There are comments about the now famous, the now famous Mike. Uh, analogy that has been used by me and many, many other people um, from your debate with Matt Dillahunty, where you said, if my head was severed and later on without human involvement, it was reattached and I stood up and began to tell you, Matt, about a conversation I'd had with a friend or loved one that only you would know about. Would you then, I I don't know what it was, would you believe that supernatural is possible or something like that? And it was, um, and I don't remember exactly how he answered it, but it wasn't a positive answer. I think Uh, you said that. Probably not. 
something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Things that something like I'd have to accept whatever reality seems to be giving me, but I would be it could be delusion or something. But anyway, that we've gotten a lot of mileage uh, out of your incredible analogies. So we're going to jump right into this. So to set this up, Matt Dillahunty had a debate with Jonathan Sheffield on the Modern Day Debate Channel. And um, no disrespect to Jonathan, this is but we're not really covering the the parts of the debate past opening statements. We're just covering Matt's opening statements. And I thought this was very appropriate because for those of you that don't know, if you have the 700 page uh, book, uh, The Resurrection of Jesus, a new historiographical approach, you need to have the complementary work to that. The Gospels. Why are there differences in the Gospels from Oxford University Press? And um, uh, have that because Mike is uh, really uh, become well known in that arena as well about the Gospels, and of course that's complementary to the Resurrection case, but but is its own thing as well. And so you need to have that. But since he's done that work, and since this debate discussion was on the authorship of the Gospels, I thought it made sense for us to take a look at this together. So let's go ahead and jump in. You have anything else you want to say in terms of preliminary stuff, Mike? No, no, this is, right. this is fun. All right, here we go. So oh, we're going to yeah, jump yeah, in. Yeah. Just say, I would like to say something. Yeah. I, um, I watched your debate with Matt. I don't know what your time was like uh, before or after the debate with him, but, um, you know, I found at least my interactions with him were very pleasant. We, we were backstage prior to the debate just hanging out, talking about magic, and uh, since he's a professional magician, and, um, yeah, I... I don't know that we've had any correspondence after the debate, but um, yeah, I found him to be a, a neat guy. Uh, how, can, how was your experience? I'd be curious to know. Yeah, I can echo that. Um, I was, I had met Matt one time before. In fact, at the conference where you debated him, I did a session at that conference and he showed up for my session and actually told me afterwards that he liked several things about my talk and had written them down and and shared them with me. So very, very friendly, very friendly before and after my debate with him. We didn't go out to dinner or anything, but very friendly. Um, I've done a lot of response videos to him since then, so I don't know how he feels about me now, but uh, I thought we got along really well. And uh, I think there's a lot... uh, good to say about his abilities and um, as an autodidactic learner and all those kind of things. But yeah. Uh, so again, for those that n- don't know on this channel, it's never about the individual. It's about the content. And sometimes that plays into a discussion about the way an individual is doing something. But this is not about the individual. This is about the content. And Matt gives us some content to work with. So let's go ahead and take a look at some of that content right now. And we're going to begin by looking at what Matt says would be the case, uh, even even if even if these uh, gospels are eyewitnesses. What would that mean? So here we go. And honestly, it doesn't matter to me whether or not the Gospels were written by a disciple or an eyewitness. As a skeptic, I understand that eyewitness testimony is unreliable. I understand that memory is faulty. I understand that stories grow in the retelling. And I also know that trying to remember a conversation from last week or even five minutes ago is difficult enough, let alone trying to chronicle a speech that you heard decades ago. As an exercise, without rewinding, you can go back and try to quote as much of what I've said so far in the last few seconds as you can. All right, Mike. So Matt says here, look, uh, it's really the question becomes somewhat moot because 
people can't remember these kind of things. People can't remember speeches and things like that. Facts, details, eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable. What say you, Dr. Lycona? Well, eyewitness testimony certainly can be unreliable, but it can also be reliable, right? And if we are going to take such a uh, pessimistic approach toward eyewitness testimony, then I'd say, let's go to all the universities and abol abolish their history departments, right? Because all that we know about the past is written by um, eyewitness sources, secondary sources, tertiary sources, um, you know, so we couldn't trust them at all, right, if uh, to learn about the past, if eyewitness testimony is entirely unreliable. We'd also have to abolish our legal system, um, because especially in a criminal case, I mean, uh, you, you say, all right, the defendant there, I saw him kill those two people. He was mugging them, and he killed the two to take their money when they resisted. I saw it with my own eyes. Um, you know, so you could raise all kinds of things. Well, eyewitnesses are mistaken. They're unreliable, right? Uh, there's mistaken identi identity. Eyewitnesses lie. They mis misperceive things. So in that case, you're just going to have to abolish our legal system as well. So, yeah, and it's true that memory is faulty. My memory is faulty. Um, you know, uh, generally speaking, we remember things that occurred at least an, uh, an essentially faithful representation of them. I might have some over the years, it depends on how uh, important something is and how much we were involved. I remember when I was in high school, I watched, a, a, I lived in Baltimore, I was watching an Orioles game, baseball game one summer on television on a Sunday afternoon, and I remember Jim Palmer, the pitcher uh, for the Orioles that day, um, hit a home run. And in my thinking, my recall, I thought it was an inside the park home run, which would seem unlike, I mean, it's really unlikely in any case, much less with a pitcher, but that's how I remembered it. And then years later, about 20 years later, I was recall, I, I got a, a chance to meet Palmer in person. And I said, how did it feel when you hit an inside the park home run? And he said, well, I never hit a home uh, inside the park home run. I hit a home run. See, in my mind, somehow I remembered it that way. So I do know that memory is faulty. My memory is faulty. But he still hit a home run. I mean, it wasn't like I just imagined the whole thing in my mind. It just it got a little exaggerated over the years. And a lot of our, our memory is uh, accurate. Um, I remember the first time I met my wife. I remember where it was. I was walking through the mall in Lynchburg, Virginia. It was my uh, first day I had just uh, driven my motorcycle in the rain from Baltimore to Lynchburg. I changed my clothes uh, after checking into uh, my room and then I, I drove over to the mall and I'm walking through the mall and I see this girl and I'm thinking, man, she's kind of cute. And then later on I, I met her just uh, within an hour later in a store and we got talking and that's, you know, I can remember there's certain things uh, according to their importance and how they relate to you personally the memory can be a little bit better. Um, stories can grow and when they're being retold, of course that can happen. But, it, um, you know, when I think, and it certainly it kind of grew when I was thinking of Palmer's home run, you know, and it grew to be an inside the park home run in my head. But then, you know, you can look and if there were multiple 
witnesses that you're, you know, they can, you can correct one another and things like that. And it depends on the amount of which they grow and the time involved and all this kind of stuff. I think you just have to be a little more specific. The fact that stories can grow doesn't mean that a particular story grew. I mean, we are 19 years removed from 9-11. Um, and I still remember that event. A lot of us remember it. I remember what the weather was like that day. I remember where I was when I learned. I remember my wife's response to it. Um, um, trying to remember what was said in a conversation like Matt's conversation. Yeah, of course, I, I wouldn't, you know, remember his exact wordings. And I think something that Bart Ehrman gives an example is what about President Obama's State of the Union from three years ago, well, four years ago. I, no, I, I don't remember that, but I only heard it once and it wasn't really important to me at the time. I can't even remember President Trump's State of the Union that occurred um, this past January. Well, I might remember some of the people he announced or brought up as, as I think there was a guy who fought in World War II, an uh, African-American guy. I think he'd been a pilot and he got an honorary promotion to general, I, I think. And, the, and, and there were some people like that. I can remember some of those, but I don't remember words. But we have to remember something. And, and yeah, you'd say, well, if you can't remember that just from a few months ago, how would you remember something from decades ago? I think we have to keep in mind a couple of things. One would be that Jesus was an itinerant preacher and his disciples traveled with him somewhere between, you know, one and a half to three years. And so it's not like they had just heard the State of the Union address one time and then were trying to recall it decades later. They had heard these teachings about Jesus. Per I mean, he probably had a dozen to 20 different lectures, talks that he gave. And he gave those same talks over and over and over and over and hundreds of times they may have heard these same talks. And then he told his disciples to go out and teach the same things. And so they would go out in, in twos and they would teach the same things over and over and over and over endless times. And they'd have one another to correct uh, the other person say, well, I don't think he quite told that parable this way. Um, and perhaps they had notes with him as well. Um, they'd come back, they'd debrief with Jesus, maybe tell him how to tell a parable in a different way. Um, and then they hear Jesus tell the same things over and over and over again. And then after he dies for the next several decades, they're talking, repeating these things perhaps thousands of times. And up, up, up until the very time that these things get put into writing, and then they continue to teach them orally even after they were put in writing. This is entirely different than hearing what Matt had just said three minutes before um, and then trying to recall it, or what someone had said in the State of the Union address and then trying to recall it a few years later. Right. I mean, right. Mike, you, Mike know, you know, that's a that's really a great, great point. Great. I've thought about this many times that – you have such a great analogy, or not analogy, example there of what happens if you're a public speaker. And Jesus was a public speaker. Uh, he was a lot more than that, but he wasn't less than that. And 
I've spoken in hundreds of churches when I was doing this um, as a traveling itinerant speaker doing evangelism and apologetics. I spoke in churches all over the place. And when you're speaking every single week, you don't have time to write new stuff every week. And there's not a need always to write new stuff every week. So I have at least a few talks uh, that I've given literally hundreds of times. And so to the point that if someone says to me, you know, when you said X and I say, yeah, but I didn't say X. Oh, yeah, I remember. I remember when you said X. No, I didn't say X um, because I have this speech memorized. In fact, my wife has heard me give these speeches enough times that my wife has these speeches memorized. And to make fun of me, she has quoted these speeches back to me before verbatim. So <laughs> it's, it's not as though, it's really not as though, well, they heard it one time or something, and then here they are decades later trying to talk about it. No, 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 no. They, they heard this stuff more than once because Jesus was preaching all over the area. And the message about the kingdom, there were, there were going to be things that were always said. And so... Um, and, and so I, the, for anyone who's a public speaker, and Matt is a public speaker, he probably hasn't thought about this aspect of it or thought about it this way because I hadn't until you pointed it out. But to anyone who's a public speaker, this is just obviously true. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, uh, Braxton. You know, there, were, um, there was a, an unapologetic conference in Texas a few years ago, and Mark Middleberg, Lee Strobel, and I were the, the, the main speakers and Lee was speaking at that point. I was sitting next to Mark. And as Lee is talking, Mark, and, and we've all become friends over the years, Mark leans over to me and he says something. And then just a few seconds later, Lee says the same thing. And I just looked at Mark and then a, a, a minute or so later, Mark leans over and he says something else to me. And then within a matter of just a couple seconds, Lee said the exact same thing. And he does this a few times and I'm just start to laugh. And then, and then he said, Mike, I've heard this talk of Lee so many times. And so he knew exactly what was going to be said at a certain amount of time and said it right before Lee did. Right. Yeah. And I could do it with Indiana Jones or Star Wars or those movies that I watched a lot as a kid. Everyone has, has, you know, that as an example. All right. So anything else you want to say on that point? Uh, nope. That's, that should be enough. All right. Let's keep trucking. Uh, I mean, after all, Matt wants to say the gospels don't even claim to have been written by these people. So let's listen to him there. The problem is that none of the gospels are signed. We don't have originals, but none of them claim to be written by the individual whose name is attached to them. None of them claim to be eyewitnesses. The closest we get is the Gospel of John's suggestion, is the Gospel of John's suggestion that this Gospel is based on the writings of the, dis, the beloved disciple, the disciple Jesus loves. But that person isn't identified or referenced with that term outside of the book of John. All right, what say you, Dr. Lycona? Well, it is true that the Gospels are anonymous. I mean, you know, we see the titles that say the Gospel according to Matthew, Gospel according to Mark, etc. But it's it's there's a, a, a good likelihood that they were those titles were not in the autographs but this really is a non-issue because with only two exceptions no ancient biographers whose writings have survived um, none of them identified themselves the only two exceptions are Lucian who wrote in the middle of the second century he wrote something called the passing of Peregrinus 
Um, and that's anonymous, or that lists the author, um, Lucian. And then you've got the life of Elias in the Historia, uh, Historia Augusta, which was written in the, I think the late fourth, early fifth century, and it's fictitious. Those are the only two biographies in antiquity for which the author identifies them himself. Um, it's possible that Suetonius identifies himself in the life of uh, Julius Caesar. He, he wrote the, uh, the Lives of the Divine Caesars, uh, so 12 Caesars, and we have those, um, and he doesn't identify himself throughout them, even in the, in the preface or the proem of any of them. But the life of Julius Caesar was the first one, and he may have identified himself in that one, but it has been lost. The uh, beginning of it has been lost. So we'll never know. All we can say is in the other 11, he doesn't identify himself. And with only the two exceptions I mentioned, no other ancient biographer identifies himself. They're all anonymous. So this uh, is very I, this is very common, and part of the way you establish this, I would imagine, is this looking at classical literature and looking at the Gospels as you've done as like you did for your book on the Gospels, right? I mean, this is and that's something. Isn't that somewhat of a um, isn't isn't that a recent approach? I don't know how recent it is. I mean, certainly they, there were some who were doing it in antiquity. Um, and even in this time, um, I think Tacitus, uh, you know, mentions his name in the proem of uh, his Annals of Rome. I, but I mean, some do. So, but almost all biographers didn't. Uh, no, I mean, what, what I'm saying is the, the, the looking at the classical literature and then looking at the Gospels as Greco-Roman biography and, and making a comparison. That, isn't that kind of a, a somewhat young uh, investigation? Or am I oh, wrong? yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you had some scholars in the 1970s like Charles Talbert and some others and then David Alney. And through their studies, they were proposing that the Gospels belong to the genre of Greco-Roman biography. Um, the most influential work was in 1992 by Richard Burridge. And um, in his work that was done um, over in the UK, his doctoral work, um, and it was published as What Are the Gospels? And it's, I mean, it was just a watershed book where he argued that they were Greco-Roman biographies. In fact, the 25th anniversary edition just came out last year. Now, there has been debate um, over um, other issues within it. Most New Testament scholars today think that it, I mean, you know, you'll have some detractors and some scholars who say, no, they're not Greco-Roman biographies. Uh, but most think that they are. Um, there's some, probably most of the dispute is over Luke uh, and they'd say, well, it's, uh, you know, that's history. That's just part one, and, and Acts is part two. It's all history. I, I think they're, you know, you got part one, part two, but I, I don't think there's really any question that Luke is a biography. Um, the genre was fluid. There was a lot of overlap at times, and Luke does have overlap with history, but it's certainly a biography because it's focusing on the life of Jesus. Uh, in a similar way, Plutarch's Life of Julius Caesar is a biography and has the same overlap with the historical historical genre as Luke has, but, but no one would consider that a history rather than a biography. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So, and I think I think we would say that many scholars, if not most, would either say it's Greco-Roman biography or something that has affinities with Greco-Roman biography. Exactly. We share a lot in common with Greco-Roman biography more than it would with anything else. And I know someone could say here, well, what about Jewish biography? Since, uh, you know, probably all of that, all of the gospel authors, except for Luke, were Jews. Well, the problem is, is that um, you've got Philo's Life of, of um, Moses, written in the earlier part of the first century, the first half of the first century. You got Josephus's autobiography in toward the end of the first century. Um, and you also have Philo's life of um, Joseph and life of Abraham, but those are very much different than his life of Moses, um, very much. And his life of Moses is more akin to Greco-Roman biography, um, very much like the Gospels. So, and it's something Louis Feldman has said, and he was, you know, what, uh, he died just a few years ago, but he was, you know, a Jewish scholar on this stuff, and he said, other than Philo's three biographies and Josephus's autobiography, we don't have any biographies of, of Jewish sages up until modern times, he says. So for some reason, Jews have just not, they've just decided not to write biographies of their sages. So if the gospel authors were going to use, uh, write a biography of Jesus, Greco-Roman biography was pretty much the only game in town. Wow. So, so, you, so the first thing you want to say about this is it's not uncommon for something to be formally anonymous in that way. That's right. Um, do, are, we in, are we in hot water here then if we believe or, or take the position that, um, that these were written by eyewitnesses or someone giving us the testimony of an eyewitness? No. Um, you know, because even though the Gospels don't formally claim to be written by eyewitnesses, um, we have good evidence that they they were. Um, I, I mean, at least they contain eyewitness testimony. They're rooted in eyewitness testimony. So, for example, our earliest source, external source, would be Papias. And it's disputed when he wrote, but typically the range is the year 100 to 150. And most scholars land on about 130. I think it's between 100 and 110. But let's just go with the scholarly consensus. You've got uh, 130. Papias attributes authorship to Matthew and Mark. Okay, Papias said he got his information from an associate of one of Jesus' apostles, and that he did so while while that apostle was still alive and teaching. So that means that Papias is claiming that he received this information in the latter part of the first century. So even if he's writing around the year 130, which again I think is too late. But even if he's writing then, he still received this information from a, an associate of one of Jesus' apostles at the end of the first century. That's remarkable. It really is. Yeah, because then, I don't I don't mean to interrupt you, Mike, but uh, and, and we do need to get back to, as people are saying, have we played a clip from Matt yet? Uh, we'll get back to that in a minute. But I do want to say, um, you've been to Turkey. You've been to Hierapolis, I assume, up there above Pamukkale, where I think that's where Papias was living, right, in, in Hierapolis, and yep. was interviewing. He made it a point to interview people passing through this crossroad city that Hierapolis was and get their, get firsthand information if he could. And he said, you know, he says that he's living right down the road from 
a couple of lesser known disciples of Jesus. And so you have all of that right there. Um, I remember when I was there, I thought this is just your living history here. You know, you're right here where Papias. Anyway, but I think that that's the context people might not realize. Well, Papias, who's this? Well, he's somebody who was in the living memory of all of these things. Um, Some of the apostles, uh, disciples at least, were still alive at the time uh, that he was alive. And, and perhaps when he began writing, depending on when you date that. And I just think that gives a context that's really helpful. I do too. And, you know, it's just not Papias. It, it's the unanimous testimony of the early church. People like Justin, Tertullian, you know, Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria and others, they all, it's unanimous. It was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and it's virtually unanimous with John. So, you know, we've got, I think we have some, and that's just the external evidence. There's internal evidence that also suggests, you know, these type of authors or that it's rooted in eyewitness testimony. What we have for the authorship of the Gospels is is actually better than what we have for Plutarch and for some of the other ancient authors. And yet classicists do not at all um, question, let's say, whether Plutarch wrote the 48 lives that have survived that have been attributed to them. They're anonymous, and our best source for that is called the Lamprius Catalog that's written at least 100 years after Plutarch's death and could be as long, as much as 200 or more years after Plutarch's death, and it's falsely attributed to Plutarch's son. And that is the main and first source that attributes the authorship to Plutarch's lives. And again, no classes of which I'm aware question Plutarch's lives that they were written by Plutarch all right so anything else to add on this or should we move on I mean yeah I mean there's plenty we could talk about (laughs) internal evidence external evidence the um, the, there are no good arguments to the contrary now it is the evidence for the traditional authorship of the Gospels is it unimpeachable no Um, there are different ways of interpreting it um, but the same could be said about virtually all other ancient literature, or at least a lot of it, even by our best authors, such as uh, Livy and uh, Sallust and Plutarch and, and others. Um, you know, the, the evidence we have for the traditional authorship of the Gospels is better than we have for some of those. Again, it's not unimpeachable. And probably the most problems are with Matthew and authorship, and we could go into that more. I'd be happy to do that, but you probably want to move on. I, I think it's just safe to conclude, you know, without getting into a whole lot of nitty-gritty here, I think we're safe in concluding at least to say that all four Gospels are rooted in eyewitness testimony. Yeah, so uh, as we move on to the next clip, just to say, sometimes in the YouTube arena and at a a sort of colloquial, popular level, we tend to think unintentionally sometimes, we tend to think, well, wait a minute, can you prove it 100%? If you can't prove it 100%, then you don't have a case, which is exactly wrong, especially when we're doing history. Um, My understanding is what we're trying to do is something like inference to the best explanation. What is most likely to have been the case? historically. And we'll never get to that Cartesian certainty, but why do we need to get there? We're trying to see what's the most likely explanation, right, Mike? Absolutely. You're right there. All right. So let's move on about the language that they were written in. The books are written in Greek uh, decades later after the events, seemingly from Greece, and Jesus and his disciples would have spoken Aramaic and the events occurred in Galilee. 
Okay, so uh, these things were written in Greek. Uh, looks like they were written from Greek because of that. And Jesus and, and his uh, disciples would have spoken Aramaic. Uh, is this a problem for us, Mike? No, not at all. Um, the, the fact is that even if the traditional, let's just say the traditional authorship of Matthew and, and John and, uh, and Mark are correct, okay? Um, you know, a lot believe that Mark was writing from Rome, so he's probably bilingual and can speak Greek fluently. In fact, I would say that uh, Jesus and all of his disciples were probably bilingual. You can get to Jerusalem, which was, you know, of course, the, the most Jewish of the cities. And what did they, what did the gospel say, uh, Pilate put on that plaque on Jesus' cross? Uh, Jesus, the king of the Jews, and it's written in, in, um, in Italian, or I'm sorry, Italian, Latin. It was written in Greek, and it was written in Aramaic. Well, why put it in Latin and Greek? Well, because people who spoke... Uh, and read Greek and Latin were in Jerusalem. Uh, Craig Evans has talked about a um, synagogue that was discovered in Jerusalem, and it had engraved on it uh, in Greek, welcoming uh, visitors. So, you know, a lot of people were bilingual. That doesn't mean they'd be as fluent in Greek as they were the Jews, as they were in Aramaic, but still they would have been able to, to converse, um, a likelihood that when Jesus and Pilate were talking, it probably wasn't as we saw in the Passion of the Christ where Jesus speaks in Aramaic and Pilate speaks in Latin. They either had a translator or they were both speaking in Greek. Um, and I would say that Matthew and John and probably Mark probably were not the ones that held the pen in their hand uh, uh, and, and wrote that the Gospels. They probably had secretaries, and those secretaries uh, would have done much more than just take dictation. Um, my friend Randy Richards is at uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University, he has written, he did his doctoral research and, and written a fantastic book on scribal practices and how secretaries worked back then. And he points out that even Cicero, one of the most highly educated and articulate uh, men in Rome uh, at that time, that he used a secretary named Tiro, and he used Tiro to do editing, take his writings and work them to make them better. Um, Paul, he mentions having a secretary in several of his letters. He says, I, Paul, who write this letter, send you my greetings, which means, um, uh, who write this greeting, I, Paul, who write this, let's see, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, which means he didn't write the rest of it with his own hand. Well, you say, well, the scribe could have just taken dictation. Well, there's a problem with that. And Randy says this, he teaches this in his classes, he says, he, he passes out a piece of papyrus to each of the students, he gives a little bit of ink to each of the students, and then he gives a writing utensil. Um, like a feather or something to each of his students, and he says, all right, I want you to write this down. Paul, an apostle, and they dip it in ink, and they begin writing. And then a minute later, of Jesus Christ. Now, can you imagine doing a whole letter that way? No, what Paul would do is he would tell them some, some thoughts, and they would, if, if he's got a secretary, he'd tell them some thoughts, they'd take notes, then they would help him compose the letter, they might even compose it themselves, 
and then Paul would turn around and read it and make you know give suggestions and then they'd write a final draft and, and Paul would well of course if Paul's going to do this and he's highly educated in fact Romans is his crown jewel letter and in chapter 16 verse 22 it says I Tertius who wrote this letter send you my greetings in the in the Lord yeah. it's like wow okay well and and that letter is so much more beautifully constructed than any other of Paul's letters Tertius almost certainly did a whole lot more than dictation. He probably composed the letter based on what Paul, Paul's thinking here. And Paul said, man, just like Tiro made Cicero sound better, Tertius made Paul sound better. Well, if you're going to do that with a letter, can you imagine, you know, say John, who's a fisherman, um, he's going to have a secretary. Matthew, who's a tax collector, he may very well have had a secretary. And so it's going to be those people who are taking notes from Matthew, John, whatever, from Mark, and then they are going to compose that gospel uh, under the supervision of the person whom it's attributed to. And that person is going to sign off on everything and make suggestions and all of that. So they would have needed to know to, to, to be fluent in Greek. They just have to be able to um, converse in it and know it a little bit, or at least their secretaries would. It's not a problem at all. It seems almost, Mike, like it's an obvious suggestion. I mean, if we are producing a document that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is the message about our Savior, we're going to want to put a lot of effort into making sure that that document is everything it needs to be to get the widest audience. Um, when we write dissertations or major writing projects, we may have written it, but it's only because we have word processors where we can have people proofread for us and it's all pretty easy, but we still pay, what, several hundred, maybe even a thousand dollars or more to get someone to proofread that and tweak things and all that to make sure, because this document is really important to us. This is the culmination of our degree program. How much more for the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? It, it seems like if I was there and maybe one of these guys says, I'm thinking about writing this thing myself. I might be like, whoa, 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 man, hold on. We got this guy over here that can write in beautiful Greek. Let's let him handle it. <laughs> it you know, you're absolutely right. And I'll just tell you, with my book on gospel differences, I gave that manuscript before I handed it over to the publisher. Um, the part written on Plutarch, four classicists, four individual classicists read through that and made comments uh, because I realized it, it's a field that's not my own. Um, you know, Plutarch was not my own. And I didn't want to be like a blind man stumbling through a minefield, right? So I gave it to four classicists to, you know, tell me where I was wrong and to guide me in different directions. Um, and, and they did and pointed out things where I had it wrong. So I ran this by four classicists. And then the gospel stuff I ran by two New Testament scholars, highly uh, revered or respected New Testament scholars to see what they thought and and they would offer some corrections on some things and then after all that was done I gave it to a, a professional editor and paid several thousands of dollars out of my own pocket and he made it sound so much better he was able to do a lot of things to make it a whole lot better and you know look I, I've been in school for a while I, I, I went I've got a high school education, college, grad, uh, master's, uh, PhD, and yet still gave it to an editor to make me sound even better. And then once I turned it over to Oxford, they had their own editor who would go through and found a bunch more things. So 
if we're going to do this, like, and you know, you've got a doctorate, uh, Braxton. If we do that with our stuff today, and we see no problem with it, well, I don't see any reason why we would have problems with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who would be using a secretary to help them make their work better. Would you say, Mike, uh, uh, that the fact that they're written in Greek doesn't speak to uh, whether or not these guys wrote it? It speaks to the dominance of the Greek language in the culture at that time. Would you say that? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Before we go on, uh, just because it's Cameron, uh, Cameron over at Capturing Christianity says, question for Mike, what are your top three book recommendations on the historicity of the Gospels? By the way, Christianity is true. Oh, <laughs> um, well, Cameron, um, the historicity of the Gospels, or I guess the Maybe you're asking about the historical reliability of the Gospels. Um, you know, right now, I, I think, and if, if I were only going to recommend one book, I'd say Craig Blumberg's book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, the second edition. It's really a great book. Um, I'd say uh, Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the second oh. edition, because that has over 100 new pages in it. And, um, you know, there were some things that um, Bauckham in the second edition explains a little bit more and clarifies something. Like, there were some things in the first edition I thought, eh, you know, I don't know the thing about inclusio, it's possible, but I, I think uh, the additional content he puts on that and some other things in the second edition are really helpful. So those would be two of them. Um, you know, if we're talking about the historical reliability of the Gospels and some things like that, I'd have, uh, I'd have, if you're talking about the top three, I don't know, the third one, I'm not having one come to my mind immediately. Um, I mean, there's some others, but they would, uh, you know, take a distant third if they fit in that position. And it depends what you're you're looking for, you know, something like, Historical reliability of the Gospels, Jesus and the eyewitnesses, that would be on an intermediate level. Um, I think the recent book by Peter Williams about the historical reliability of the Gospels is a, is a decent one, but it's really, really lower shelves. It's putting the cookies on the lower shelf. It doesn't get into a whole lot of things. It's, you know, it's something a, a high school student or uh, the person in the pew who's not really interested in the stuff or the average college student w would read, but it's not going to get a, a whole lot of detail like Blomberg's and Balkum's book's going to do. So it's decent, but I wouldn't put it in the same league as the other two. All right, so let's move along here and uh, let's see what else Matt has to say. But modern audiences just see a package of books and consider it a book or a divinely inspired collection of books. They see the names attributed by the church in antiquity and just assume that these individuals who could not have investigated the authorship of these documents somehow got it right. What say you, Dr. Lycona? Well, if only one testified to the authorship, if only one early church father testified to the authorship, then we'd have more reason to doubt. But many attest to the authorship of each gospel. And like I said a few moments ago, the testimonies are unanimous, at least when we come to the synoptic gospels. And there are only two exceptions for John. One is a Gnostic source who attributes it to Serenthus. And then the other, it just seems like he's just confused about some things and he's later. So, you know, the external source, uh, the external evidence we have for the traditional authorship, I, I think is, is pretty good. And, 
you know, it, again, it's not unimpeachable, but when you compare it with the kind of evidence we have for other ancient historiography, um, the Gospels come out looking pretty good in, in most cases. So re relatively speaking, you know, if you're going to reject the authorship of the Gospels based on the reasons Matt provides, then you're going to you're going to cast all sort even greater doubt on all of the other ancient literature or a lot of the other ancient literature, and that's something that you know scholars, uh, uh, whether it be New Testament scholars or classicists, aren't willing to do. Um, but Mike, I can hear somebody coming back and saying, okay, there's a couple of problems there. Number one, perhaps as a skeptic, fine, fine, let's cast out on all of those things. Um, that's one thing someone could say. And uh, the other thing they could say is, okay, but those other things that we're talking about, historical things, they don't involve the supernatural. What you're proposing involves the supernatural. And so we would need something more. Well, then I would say for the second one, See, what you're looking for then, the real objection isn't necessarily the evidence we have for the authorship. The real objection is miracles here, um, and that needs to be recognized. In terms of the first part of that that says, well, maybe we should reject them all, um, I think here's where you look and you say, again, they're not unimpeachable, but then you can look and say, well, we've got multiple independent sources. So, for example, uh, Julius Caesar's assassination is attested by multiple independent sources. His crossing the Rubicon is attested by multiple independent sources. Um, the uh, attempted crowning at the Lupercalia festival a month before his assassination is attested in multiple independent sources. Um, and, and so you, you look at these kinds of things and you say, all right, even if we have some doubt even because the sources attesting to authorship are um, are not perfect, okay? Even if we have some doubt, we still look at things like if, if it's attested in multiple independent sources, and if there are um, things in it that would seem to suggest that these are rooted in eyewitness testimony, and if they're written fairly close to the events they purport to describe, if they're reporting things that you wouldn't, and you know, embarrassing information that you wouldn't expect to be reported by a friendly source, if they're reported by unsympathetic sources, these kinds of things, common sense criteria would suggest that a number of these things are, are indeed accurate. And then like Craig Keener has done more in detail, he compares how multiple authors are test of like Tacitus, Plutarch, and Suetonius uh, are reporting the same events, and he's a, being able to identify. Well, there's all these different points of contact, and even though there might be slight differences in the details, they are very similar in reporting the gist uh, of what occurred. Um, the only some peripheral details might differ a little bit. So when you yeah. see that kind of stuff, that gives us reason to think that these authors, who are obviously going to be relying on sources, that they are using those sources responsibly where we can test them. And in turn, that, would, that could also suggest that the attributions of authorship to them would be correct. Yeah, and I suppose the um, issue of the supernatural wouldn't really come up when we're just talking about the authorship.
um, the claims would be where that would come up. But you've kind of given us the inverse here of what Matt gave us at the beginning. Well, even if it was eyewitnesses, and you're saying uh, even if these weren't the author, if it, if it weren't the authors that perhaps someone might might think or uh, church history might give us, there's still enough in there to tell us that it's it's it seems to be eyewitness or rooted in eyewitness, and they seem to be giving us enough of these tells of of historiography that we can we can conclude that a lot of this seems to be. Uh, pointing to historical events that actually happened. And a lot of those things, like the principle of embarrassment and all those those deals, Bart Ehrman talks about those things too. That's not like stuff Christians came up with to try and uh, to try and hoist up the Gospels. Anything else on that? I mean, there's more we could cover, but I know that you're going to want to move on in time. I think we've covered some of the major points, though. Yeah, I mean, I promised you we'd try to go about an hour, and we're coming up on an hour. You can go a little longer. I don't mind. Okay, good. All right, so uh, well, you were talking a little bit about what type of, what genre of literature this is. Here, here's something that Matt adds to that discussion. So there's no claim to eyewitness. They don't read like eyewitnesses. They're more of a narrative. Okay, so they don't read like eyewitnesses. They read like more of a narrative, Mike. Well, John, John certainly reads like an eyewitness account uh, because, or I should say, depending on how, you, uh, listen, John's gospel is written entirely in the third person. Um, so you can take that in one of two ways. If it's written by a, uh, someone, you can, you can use, think of it as the eyewitness writing in the third person, like Julius Caesar does in his commentary on the Civil War. The entire thing is written in the third person where Caesar's referring to himself as, well, he did this, or Caesar did this. That's writing in the third person. Uh, Polybius often writes in the third person, and so do some others. So it's not like if John wrote the entire thing, that he was an eyewitness writing in the third person, that that would be odd. It would, it would not be how the majority would write, but it was certainly not unheard of. Um, so you could take it that way, or you could take it that someone was using uh, John, uh, the, the apostle, or one of Jesus' disciples, the beloved disciple, um, as the primary source for that gospel. So it reads either as though it was written by an eyewitness or the one referring or relying on eyewitness sources because it talks about, you know, the disciple who saw these things is testifying to these things and we know that his testimony is true. You know, you've got statements like this in John. So it is reading like an eyewitness source or one that is relying on eyewitness testimony. Um, but And some of the others, you know, when you're looking at it, are, they still are reading narrative. And Caesar's commentary on the Civil War does not read like it's written by an eyewitness, but by someone who's just writing narrative about what happened. And let's uh, let's go ahead, Mike, and just say this for the sake of the video, um, th where the scholars stand on this, on, on this stuff. So my understanding is that a slight majority, but it is a majority, but it's a slight majority, would say uh, that someone giving you the testimony, uh, what they remembered of the testimony of Peter, wrote Mark. And then um, with correct. Luke, someone, a slight majority would say, someone who was a traveling companion of Paul and had access perhaps to some of the other disciples of Jesus, maybe the women, wrote Luke. Um, John, um, someone, a lesser known disciple, or uh, John, son of Zebedee, 
which I think you would say most of the scholars that take that position would say it's probably a lesser known disciple of John, right? Uh, of Jesus. It, or, yeah. or would you that, say, okay. And yeah. then with, with yep. Matthew, we do not have a majority of scholars saying Matthew wrote Matthew, but, um, but we could make a case for that nonetheless. Is that pretty well the spread or something close to the spread? Almost. Uh, with John, I would, uh, I would say that uh, I've asked Keener about it because he's, he's really done a lot of work on that, of course. And Craig Keener says the majority of scholars would say that John, the son of Zebedee, did not write uh, John's gospel. But whoever wrote it, whether it was an individual or, you know, a team, um, their primary source was one of Jesus's minor disciples, but someone who had traveled with Jesus. Um, some would go as far as to say they think that it is that they relied on the testimony of John, the son of Zebedee, uh, Dale Allison at Princeton. That's what he thinks, or at least what he did just you know, two or three years ago. Um, so, yeah. And I, I'd say I have a student who just wrote a fantastic master's thesis in which he, uh, and he's going to go on for his doctorate, but he was able to survey 207 critical scholars writing in English since 1965 and found that a, uh, a slight majority of them do go with the traditional authorship of Mark and that he was, that Mark was, his primary source was, was none other than Peter. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a really robust sampling. Now it's English only. And of course there are other languages of scholars that you'd want to consult, but it's still a robust sampling. Yeah, so this is an important thing to point out. Now, notice we'll be accused of of just pointing to you know the the, the number of scholars that you know a lot of times evidentialists get get um, criticized for that. But we're actually talking about the evidence throughout this discussion. But that's a relevant point I think to throw in. Um, all right, so let's let's keep moving. Yeah, we, we don't like. believe it because the majority of scholars do because scholars can be wrong. But you know we're living old time here and we're given some reasons. I'm saying, you know, there are good reasons for thinking this. And in fact, it, they, they are they have persuaded a majority, slight majority, whatever, of scholars to embrace that view. Yeah. Well, what about an alternative hypothesis for how these names came to be attached to the Gospels? Let's hear what Matt has to say there. It makes sense that as battles occurred between different Christian sects, from the beginning of the second century through the mid fourth century, the doctrinal wars, and there's still no canon at this point. There's loose suggestions about a canon, and so you have competing ideologies. So how do you show that your preferred text, your preferred canon, shared by many, is more accurate and foundational? Why, you can just claim that yours has a direct tie to one of the disciples. Yeah, so if I've got a document here and I'm wanting my position or my favorite document to be accepted to that kind of represents my sect, maybe I start talking about it's connected to one of the disciples. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, my friend Daryl Bach, he said in, uh, I forgot what book he said, but he, he said, you know, sometimes the winners deserve to win. And, and the winners did. They deserve, that made it into the canon, they deserve to win. Um, Bart Ehrman is no evangelical. He's not a Christian. Um, he goes between being an agnostic and an atheist. 
But he talks about, you know, uh, look, I haven't studied the second and third century literature uh, a whole lot. I've been primarily concerned with first century literature, uh, Christian literature. And, but Ehrman has, he's very familiar with the non-canonical Christian literature and has written on it. And he's made a statement in his New Testament intro that says that these non-canonical writings, like the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Philip, some of these, they inform us more about what some Christians in the second and third centuries were saying about Jesus. He said, but if you really want to know what the real Jesus was like, there's only one place to go, and that's the New Testament Gospels. And he adds, he said, this is not for theological reasons, but it's for historical reasons, pure and simple. That's a virtual quote there. So even Ehrman, who has no dog in the fight here in terms of you know, what, what literature should be included in the canon, he says the canon did not misfire, right? They got it right. The books that are in the New Testament should have been there, at least when we're talking about the Gospels. They, they got it right when it came to the Gospels. Um, I'd also add that, you know, the way Matt sets things up, it makes it Im impossible for him to verify just about any ancient literature. Because any author who makes a claim to be reporting truth could simply be dismissed because he's saying it so that others, like readers, will believe his account over that of another. So, you know, when you really look at it, we've got good evidence for, say, the Gospels that made it into our New Testament. But when you compare it with the Gospels outside of the New Testament, you all you have to do is read them and you can see why they didn't make it. You know, Mike, um, on my Twitter feed right now, I posted some uh, testimonies from yesterday's video where people were saying they were uh, an atheist and became a Christian because God used apologetics to do that. And one of the individuals, I think the most recent tweet I have on this, one of the individuals said, it might surprise you to know that God used Bart Ehrman to open the door for me to come to Christ because of the things that he does say, like what you just said uh, about the Gospels and, um, and, and other things. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's almost like the—I'm not saying that Bart Ehrman means anything for evil, but it reminds me of that, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You know, uh, something that doesn't seem complementary to Christianity can, in the end, turn around and, and lead people to Christ. God can use anything. Uh, but all right, so let's um, let's uh, let's move on here, and uh, let's take a look at biased church fathers. There are church fathers doing this, not unbiased historians, not expert researchers, not time travelers. They can only either tell you what they think or what they've heard. It's not like they lay out an evidence-based claim for authorship. It's oh, I have it on authority from someone. Okay, uh, do we, are we just stuck taking biased people's word for it? Well, I have news that will disappoint some. The unbiased historian who's entirely objective is a mythical character. He does not exist. Sorry to disappoint what? you. What? No, they do not exist. Expert researchers, well, there's sufficient evidence that suggests that, um, as I mentioned, that the Gospels are at least rooted in eyewitness testimony, and that's still very good. Um, the widow of a World War II vet could still be a responsible source uh, about stories her husband had relayed to her about the war, 
all right? Um, so maybe she's a widow. Maybe he told her these stories shortly after the war, and 60 years later, she's recalling these stories. Um, you know, she could still be a good witness, but she wouldn't be an eye. She wouldn't be an eyewitness, and she wouldn't be an expert researcher. Um, my wife and I befriended a, a, just a lovely woman uh, named Catherine Phillips Singer, and she appeared in Ken Burns' special, *The War*, which is all about World War II. And when we watched it, we just fell in love with this woman. We said we would love to meet her someday. And it was kind of like on our bucket list. She, and we found out she lived in Mobile, Alabama. And at a conference I was speaking at in, I believe, northern Alabama, I bumped into a, a guy uh, that actually knew her. And before we know it, we're talking to her on the phone. And subsequent to that, we've actually been in her house twice. Now, she, she died this past November, very sad. Um, and she was in her 90s. Just a, an amazing woman. And she was recalling events that she was the best storyteller I've ever heard. She could just have you in stitches. And she had, you could tell that she had told these stories so many times over the years. But these were stories about the war that um, her brother and her husband had told her and her brother's best friend, Eugene Sledge, um, the book of, of his was the, it's the series, um, The Pacific, was based on Sledge's book. So she heard all these stories. She could repeat these kinds of things. And she just had these, this just amazing way. But she was not a historian. She was not a professional researcher. And she wasn't an eyewitness to some of these things. So, um, but, but still, she would have been a good witness. So... No unbiased historians, and you don't have to be a time traveler in order to be a, a good source. All right, that's good. Well, I've got three more clips, Mike. They're short. Do you think you can handle three sure. more clips? All right, let's talk about Irenaeus. Here we go. Irenaeus was the first to cite John as the author, referencing others as well. Anything to say about that? Yeah, he's the first to name the authorship of the four Gospels, but there were, you know, other witnesses before. So you've got Justin Martyr, who a few decades before Irenaeus, and Irenaeus is writing somewhere between the years 174 and 189. Justin Martyr is writing somewhere around the year 150. And he quotes the Gospels on numerous occasions, at least 10, and he refers to them as the memoirs of the apostles. So he doesn't say Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but he quotes whatever he's quoting is verbatim with what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say. I, think, I don't think he mentions anything from John, but it's verbatim for what Matthew, Mark, and Luke say. So even if he's not referring to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's referring to sources known as memoirs of the apostles that Matthew, Mark, and Luke used, and we can see that they used them verbatim, so they're using their, even if he's not referring to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the memoirs of the apostles, which is, the, if he is, that's pretty profound. But if he's not referring to that, then we can see that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are using their resources, the memoirs of the apostles, responsibly, and that would still give us confidence. Um, does, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah. So obviously this comes up because we're and you have happy to suits right before even that, of course. Right. Yeah. Right. So Matt's leading us into uh, a discussion now of 
gospels that made it versus gospels that didn't. And so that that would be a, a reason why you might mention that. But let's let's hear uh, the rest of the statement there about okay. this. Uh, uh, so it's a century. Let's let's hear what he says about how long it's been. Remember, a century is quite a long time. To say that there's a bunch of people within a century or so who all agree on authorship doesn't tell you why they agree on authorship. If they agree because Arrhenius said so, then you have exactly one source. Yeah. So uh, what, do you, what do you think about that? Well, Solid point? Okay. Well, I mean, of course, we all have our wish lists. And if you wanted the perfect source, our perfect source would be an eyewitness and or a secondary source that says where they got their information from. But, I mean, just we don't have that in a lot of cases. That doesn't mean what we have uh, shouldn't be taken into consideration and trusted. I mean, okay, so Irenaeus, if he's writing between 174 and 189, and the, the last gospel, John, most scholars think is written between 90 and 95. So that means Irenaeus is writing somewhere between 80 and 100 years after John wrote. Okay, 80 to 100 years after John wrote. If you think that a century is too late, then you could, should consider that Sallust is regarded as one of Rome's finest historians. Um, the great rhetorician Quintilian in the latter part of the first century uh, said that Sallust was a better historian than Livy and that one needed to be well advanced in their studies in order to appreciate him properly. Um, the earliest source that links Sallust to his histories of Rome is Seneca the Elder, who wrote 75 years later. The earliest source that links Sallust's war with Catiline and his war with Jugurtha is Quintilian, who's writing 135 years later or even longer. Um, and neither of them... Seneca the Elder or Quintilian tell us how they know this. So if, if you've got problems with Irenaeus saying this 80 to 100 years later, then you're going to have to throw out Sallust's writings as well because it's the same, if not even worse, in some cases. Then you've got Plutarch, regarded as the greatest ancient biographer. And much of what we know about the ancient world comes from Plutarch. Well, our earliest source, our best source that talks about the authorship of, uh, of Plutarch's literature is the Lamprius Catalog, which I mentioned, I think, a little bit earlier. And that's written no less than 100 years after Plutarch's death and could be as much as 200 years or even later after his death. And it's falsely attributed to his son. And some of the literature that's attributed to Plutarch in it, we know was not written by Plutarch. And yet that's our best source. Now, some of Plutarch's moralia are questioned, but none of the lives, the Plutarchan authorship of the lives, none of them are questioned. So, again, if you're taking that our first, our, our sources, like Irenaeus, are testing to it a century later, which it's 80 to 100 years later, and... Um, you're saying that's not good enough, but then you're going to have to say it's not good enough for Salus, it's not good enough for Plutarch. And then you've got to remember that, Matthew, um, I'm sorry, Justin Martyr is referring to the memoirs of the apostles and quoting from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's writing at 150, so now we're looking at 55 to 65 years 
after the latest Gospel of John. And then you're looking at Papias, who's writing even earlier, and he does tell us his source, that it is an associate of one of Jesus' apostles that he received it from while that apostle was still preaching. So, again, we've got some, we've got some pretty good stuff for the Gospels compared to what we have for others. Yeah, it's not real. It would be a, it, it's an incredible oversimplification, if not um, j- just a misunderstanding that just because Irenaeus says so. That's not really what's going on here. Um, and that's an important thing to mention, right? That's correct, yeah. So, all right, um, last clip, last clip, but this is a fun one. This is a fun one, so let's listen to what he has to say. Read a gospel that made the cut and one that didn't, and please tell me how to find out which is true and who wrote which. I have no way to tell. He has no way to tell. So we're, we're familiar with the fact that there are these other documents out there, um, and, and maybe he's right. Maybe, Mike, I've just kind of officially assumed that what is in that black leather bound uh, New American Standard Bible was handed down from God out of heaven. And, um, and, and, and maybe, maybe that's not fair. Maybe there's other documents that should be in there instead of these Gospels. Yeah, when it comes to canonicity, I mean, it's, it's not a, just a cut-and-dry thing. Um, but, you know, when you read some of these other sources, these non-canonical sources, like the Gospel of Mary, the, the Gospel of Philip, and, and some of these, the, the infancy Gospel of Thomas, I mean, you can see the differences between them. And, you know, there is a unity between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and a unity between the Gospels and what Paul says. And with Paul, we can link Paul and some of the things he says back to the Jerusalem Apostles with, with very high degree of certainty. And then we see that some of the things that he says about Jesus in his letters squares really well with what we find in the Gospels. And like I said before, you've got multiple independent sources. So I'm just to give you an example. Um, Jesus' Eucharist sayings, the, the sayings at the Last Supper about, you know, taking, uh, drinking his blood and eating his body when he breaks the bread and gives him the wine. Um, you find Matthew and Mark virtually verbatim, which I take that that Matthew is Luke using Mark as his source. Okay. And then Luke is virtually verbatim with Paul's use of those Eucharist sayings in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 virtually verbatim, and Luke's writings anywhere between 5 and 35 years later, so, uh, and he probably doesn't have Paul's letters before him, which tells us there was some oral tradition uh, that was going on. Paul is quoting oral tradition, and Luke is using the same oral tradition, so we know that that's floating around. And then Mark, whether he is just paraphrasing or writing down Peter's recollections, and Matthew is using that. That's still a separate tradition, but we can see they agree, even though they're not verbatim, and we see two distinct separate traditions. They're entirely compatible. So there are multiple independent sources that we find that's going on uh, between those two. And we can find this kind of stuff in numerous cases. You can't do anything like this with the later Gnostic and other non-canonical Gospels. So, you know, th- it's reasons like this and others that 
um, Bart Ehrman can say, look, if you really want to know about Jesus, there's only one place to go. It's the New Testament Gospels. It's not for theological reasons because these are in the canon and the others aren't. Um, or because these agree with my theology and the others don't. He says it's for historical reasons, pure and simple. Man, that's great, Mike. Well, listen, uh, this has been a blast. Is there anything you'd like to say summatively about um, how Matt deals with these sorts of things? Um, what you think about him in, in these exchange? Anything you want to say about him or to him as an individual? Yeah, you know, these kind of quick quips where you just throw a bunch of stuff together um, to, you know, in, in just a quick list of things that are meant to cast doubt on the Gospels. I mean, they have, they do have a powerful rhetorical effect, but when you break it down, they really don't hold any weight at all. These can be answered, um, and not just answered, they can be shown, I think, to be uh, you know, more probable than not that, that it's false. I think we've got decent evidence that it's more probable than not that the Gospels are rooted in eyewitness testimony and that they are trustworthy. Um, if someone wants to go a little bit deeper into this, I did, I wrote an article that was published last year, and I do have a copy of it on my website, risenjesus.com. Go to blog and then go down maybe three, two or three or four entries, and you'll see an article about how I compare Suetonius' Life of Augustus, which is Suetonius' finest biography, and Suetonius writes more like modern biographers than any other ancient biographer. So I compare Suetonius' Life of Augustus with the Gospel of Mark in, for, in view of historical reliability, and I assess them according to four criteria. And I think you'll find Mark does really well. So um, that'd be something they can also go and see some things on my webs on my YouTube channel. Uh, just go to YouTube, type in my name, you'll see my channel. I've got some videos there. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the things you're talking about how these these meme sort of comments, you know, these these real fast paced uh, sort of things. One thing that I found about YouTube, um, and Matt obviously transcends YouTube. He goes and has live public debates and things like that. But one thing I found uh, on YouTube is that mockery and rhetorical devices are seem to be more powerful a lot of the time than the rigorous argumentation. Um, and so a lot of the channels are kind of built around that. And there are Christian channels that are built that way. And of course, re you know, rhetorical strategies and even mockery doesn't have to be a bad thing in and of itself. Um, I mean, you know, we're friends with David Wood, right? I mean, you know, mockery doesn't have to be a bad thing, but it needs to have content behind it. And so I love it when we can get together and look under the hood and say, is there content here? And if so, how solid is that content? Um, but I've enjoyed this. And listen, uh, we've talked about your books. Two, two things I want to say. First of all, we've talked about your books. I do want to say beyond that, um, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Bauckham, Bauckman, uh, Bauckham. Richard Bauckham is one uh, is one of the few books in my life that has just blown my mind. I mm. mean, if you haven't read Richard Bauckham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, you need to get that today. And secondly, if you haven't watched Matt's de uh, debate with Mike, you need to do that before this day is done. I'm going to tell you what's so awesome about that debate. 
that was the first Mike Lycona debate I had never I had ever been there for. And for those of you that are methodology geeks that like to talk about apologetic methodology, Mike is what's called an evidentialist. Now, people would call us both evidentialists, but in a very specific methodological uh, way, uh, Mike would be the type of apologist that would focus usually primarily on the resurrection or something about the divinity of Christ. And of course, he's a gospels guy, so we'll do some stuff there, but, it's, but he's the type that will focus on the resurrection. I, I'd, I'd follow the William Lane Craig sort of a style of show that God exists and then show that, there, that this God raised Jesus from the dead. I think that, and that's called a classical apologist. I think that Mike acted like a classical apologist in his debate with Matt Dillahunty because he argued first for the supernatural. He didn't argue for God's existence, but he argued for the supernatural so that when we come to the resurrection, you've already got the supernatural in play, um, and that's helpful with the resurrection discussion. And the stuff he brings out in the first part of his opening statements I guarantee you haven't heard a lot of this stuff in these kind of debates before, and it is so awesome. you got to go check it out. Great <laughs> debate. Uh, but listen, Mike, thanks so much. You guys want to go and subscribe to Mike's channel so that you can hear those fly-on-the-wall discussions. Um, and, uh, Mike, I appreciate you being a fly-on-my-wall today at Trinity <laughs> Radio. And uh, listen, if you believe in what we're doing here, you can help us out by visiting us at patreon.com slash Radio. And, hey, if you're the kind of person that if you were here right now, you'd say, hey, Mike, hey, Braxton, let's go grab a cup of coffee and you buy our coffee. Hey, you can, you can do something very close to that on Patreon. But if you don't, listen, we do this for free because we love the Lord and we want to further uh, the cause of the kingdom and see people come to Christ. And we don't want people to believe wrong things. We This channel exists because we love atheists and um, and we love Matt Dillahunty. And so hope that he hears this. Hope that he hears the spirit with which it was given. And uh, Mike, any last words? No, uh, it's been fun, Braxton. Love you, man. And um, uh, I hope the viewers have found this helpful. I think they will. And listen, to the rest of you, we'll look forward to seeing you next time on Trinity Radio.